0: the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message,
1: here is our teacher. Have you ever wondered what God really thinks about you? Our greatest barrier to knowing God better may be how much we know and understand what God knows about us. We struggle with God because of our guilt, our understanding of our sin. And we know that if we are painfully aware of our sin, how much more God Knows all about us. We can't fool him. Have you ever had one of those times where you were so deeply aware of your own sin, your own failures, that you didn't even feel like praying, reading your Bible, or spending time with God? Many Christians have been down that road. Weeks can turn into months and your faith in Christ becomes stunted. The problem is that Christians often run from God rather than to him. Because we know our own sin, we know our own depravity, but we don't truly know the heart of God. And that is where Psalm 103 can help us tremendously. Perhaps no other chapter in the Bible so clearly reveals God's compassion for his people. If you're wanting to know what God thinks of you, let's take a journey through Psalm 103 and discover God's heart for us. We pick it up with verse 6. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. Robert Kennedy, not the Robert Kennedy you're probably thinking about. This Robert Kennedy was a missionary to South America. Robert visited the dense jungle of the Amazon. He talked with a Brazilian native who had recently come to know Christ. Working through a translator, the communication was strained. And because things were not getting through with the translation, Robert didn't understand that this man who lived deep in the heart of the Amazon jungle had come to know Jesus Christ. He didn't understand the man had come to faith in Christ. And so he just asked an innocent question, trying to make a connection, trying to make small talk of what it was that this man liked to spend his time on. He expected to receive a generic answer, like hunting with bows and arrows, maybe canoeing. But he was not prepared for when the man answered that he preferred to spend his time being occupied with God. Robert was stunned by this, and so he told the translator to ask the man again, because surely he thought that something must be lost in the translation And when he was asked again, the same response came that the constant preoccupation of this new believer was quite simply God. This true story from the original Amazon provides a beautiful image of authentic worship, a redeemed life being gloriously occupied with the richness and greatness of God. A believer in Christ, living day by day, loving God and being captivated with his majesty. Worship is not about keeping up an outward facade of rituals, rules or religion. It is about an inward reality of a living relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Worship is the soul's encounter with the supreme majesty of God and the risen Christ. Worship is experiencing God in one's innermost being. All that I am, responding to all that he is. This should be every believer's glorious occupation. This is the heartbeat of Psalm 103. It is a hymn of praise to God that overflows from a heart supremely devoted to the Lord. In this psalm, David surveyed the love and compassion of God towards his people. In every line of this masterpiece, he encouraged his own soul to join him in praising God. David speaks for all of us because by speaking to his own soul, he actually speaks to each one of us. Inviting us to lift our hearts and voices to God in worship. Some of the Psalms are addressed to God. Others are addressed to people. But this one, David addressed to himself. He called upon himself to praise God. Let's join him. Verses 6 and 7 in your text. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Remember that this is primarily written with Israel in mind. God has a concern for the establishment of righteousness in this world, especially in Israel. Two aspects at work here, righteousness or salvation, and he does not tolerate injustice. God loves to help the needy. When his people were in Egypt, he heard their groans. He heard their cries. He delivered them from the oppression in Egypt. The oppressed are those who cannot help themselves. In the Old Testament, the word especially referred to widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. You see, when we are tempted to take advantage of others because we are strong and they are weak, God says, think about that first. Because he takes the side of the weak, our God keeps his eyes on the helpless. And when others hurt them, he moves to balance the scales of justice. There can be times when this may seem hard to believe, especially when we see wars, death, and heartache. But this trust stands like a solid rock for the believer in Christ. Think of it this way. If all of history is a book, we have not even reached a final chapter yet. We are getting closer. We are somewhere near the end, but we are not sure how far away we are. This we know. We serve a God of justice. Eventually, God will bring everything to light and he will judge with impartiality. In that day, there will be no hiding, no excuses, no bribes, no way of escape. Rest on the promise that God is keeping watch of his own. He defends them. He will step in and intervene. And he is the one who will restore justice to the earth. He will right the wrongs of this world. And if you are in need, know that God is on your side. That's a great place to start. Notice the example given. God made known his ways to Moses. God revealed the law, his instruction to Moses. Now stop and think about why this happened. Paul declared Israel had been blessed because unto them had been committed the oracles of God. Go back to what happened. You see, verses 7 and 8 are referring back to Mount Sinai. This was after the sin of the golden calf. And what did Moses do? He prayed. He prayed for his people. Listen to what he prayed for. Moses prayed for a greater revelation of the love, mercy, and forgiveness of God as a manifestation of the ways of the Lord. Exodus thirty-three thirteen boldly proclaims the prayer of Moses. Now, this is good stuff. The nation had sinned mightily. And Moses goes before God and says, Now, therefore, I pray if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. After Moses prayed, God revealed his glory to Moses. God demonstrated his compassion, but it didn't stop there. When the Hebrew people were in need, God demonstrated his rich grace. God gave them his commandments, but he also gave them food and water when they needed it most. He protected the Israelites from the army of Pharaoh. God acted on behalf of the children of Israel. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. Now, verse 8 is still referring back to Mount Sinai. And here is the key for unlocking this psalm. Verse 8, all the way to verse 12. These verses sum up all that Moses learned about God while he was on Mount Sinai. See the four attributes of God in this verse. 1. The Lord is merciful, compassionate. He pardons us. 2. The Lord is gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. 3. The Lord is slow to anger. He is patient with us when we fall. And for the Lord abounds in mercy, in love. He loves each one of us more than we can ever imagine. There is no love like God's love. When he saves, he saves completely. When he forgives, he forgives all of our sins. And when he sets us free from the penalty and bondage of sin, we're free forever. David is telling us that God revealed himself to Moses and the people of Israel as a merciful and compassionate God. In Exodus 34, the Lord passed by Moses on Mount Sinai and then told Moses the meaning of his name. The Lord told Moses who he is. Here are the words proclaimed to Moses. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Verse 8 in our psalm is a restatement by David of the words that came from God himself before Moses about who he is. David agreed with Moses. David agreed with the Lord. God is faithful to his people. But what about the wrath of God? David takes us there next, verses 9 and 10. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. God tempers his wrath. Have you ever known someone who loved to argue? We all know someone who just loves to keep an argument going because they are angry. God is not like that. That's what David means here. God will not always strive with us. He will not always accuse. The wording is directed to the covenant people of God, Israel. It means that God will not always bring a charge against his people who broke his covenant, those who broke the Mosaic law. The picture given in the text is that of a courtroom where God is both the judge and the prosecuting attorney. He has all the evidence he needs to condemn us, but he does not prolong the trial because there is forgiveness through the blood of Christ. David is basing this off of Exodus 33 and 34. The people had made the golden calf, and in spite of the sins of his people, God willingly stretched out his hands to them in mercy. Israel constantly fell into sin, and being a holy God, he did get angry at the sin. But in his compassion, he forgave them. This forgiveness was possible because one day his son would die for those sins on the cross. God is willing to end the fight and welcome us back into fellowship with him. But sometimes the real problem is that we want to keep fighting him. God is more ready to forgive than we are to be forgiven. Now, God does have anger, but it's not like ours. His anger is based out of his holiness and his patience. He lingers long with loving pauses to give men an opportunity to repent, to give an opportunity to accept his mercy. This is how he deals with the greatest sinners. He will chastise the believer in Christ as a father disciplines his children, but this is based on his love. The Lord suffers long, even under great provocation. From this, we learn that we ourselves should be slow to anger. God's anger never carries over into eternity. Believers do not have to fear that when we get to heaven, God will be angry with us. At that time, he will welcome us into his glory. And when we forget to pray, he remembers to feed us. When we forget to give thanks, he provides restful sleep. When we refuse to give, he keeps on giving still. And when we fall, he lifts us up. And when we disappoint ourselves and those around us, he still calls us his children. God even blesses those who don't believe in him. See the mercy of God. Instead of crushing unbelievers like an empty eggshell, the Lord continues to provide for those who reject him. He is the one who gives them life and sustains them. It is the long suffering of God that allows men to boldly deny their creator. And why would God do that? Why would God show such kindness to people who are totally dedicated to opposing the Christian faith? Because he is not in the least intimidated by the atheists. God withholds his punishment. This is the evidence of his mercy. If God dealt with us according to our sins, no one could stand. No one could be saved. But the mercy and grace of God is greater than your sin. Elizabeth I, we're not too familiar in the States, but she was England's most famous queen. Keep in mind, we're talking about back in the 1500s. She played favorites, and especially with one man in her royal court, the Earl of Essex. One day, she gave him a ring and promised him that if he was ever accused of a crime, all that he would have to do was send her that ring, and she would immediately grant him an audience so he could plead his case. The day came when he needed that ring because he was accused of conspiracy and high treason. He was executed because the ring Elizabeth had given him was never presented to her, so she allowed her friend to die. The years passed. Then one day the Countess of Nottingham, a relative of the Earl of Essex, was dying. She sent a message asking the queen to come to her. She had a confession that she wanted to make so she could die in peace. Queen Elizabeth arrived at the deathbed and the Countess produced the ring that the Queen had once given to the Earl of Essex. And when the Earl had been accused of treason all those years before, he had indeed given this Countess the ring to be taken straight to the Queen, but the Countess betrayed him. And so, in her last moments of life, she begged the Queen for forgiveness. At the sight of the ring, Elizabeth was livid with rage. She seized the dying countess in her bed and shook her until her teeth were rattling. God may forgive you, she screamed. God may forgive you, madam, but I never shall. Thank God for his grace. He holds no grudges, harbors no resentments, and there is no sin that he will not forgive by his grace if we simply ask him. David mentions this. Verses 11 and 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. God forgives all of our sins. Two illustrations are given to demonstrate the greatness of God's love and mercy. David looked up to the heavens and said that God's love reached that and even higher. Consider the greatness of God's love. We live in a tiny corner of the universe, and the universe is vast beyond our comprehension. But God's love is greater than the universe itself. Go get yourself a rocket equipped with any sort of sci-fi engines you can imagine. Fly at warp speed if you like. Go as far as you can go to the end of the universe, and when you get there, look up and smile because God's love is still going. You can never reach the end of it. God's mercy is greater than the heavens. Consider the magnitude of God's love. If you travel to the North Pole, you cannot go any further to the North. And if you travel to the South Pole, you cannot go any further to the South. But if you travel East or West, you never reach such a point. There is no end. God did not say here, He forgives our sins as far as the north is from the south. He said as far as the east is from the west, meaning the farther east you go, the farther you are from the west, the two never meet. That is the magnitude of God's love. When God forgives, he removes our sins. He lifts them up, takes them away, and we could never find them if we search for a thousand years because they are gone forever forgiven the guilt of my sins can never come back yours can never come back even satan cannot bring them back because the lamb of god came to take away our sins i am confident that david remembered the ceremony on the day of atonement when the goat was released into the wilderness giving the picture of israel's sins being taken away and notice in verse 11 this forgiveness and grace is for those who fear him believers It has been said of this text that God has a long fuse because in verse 8, he is slow to anger. God has a short memory because in verse 9, we are told that he does not harbor his anger forever. God has thick skin because according to verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins. And we see a God motivated by love. Be thankful that we have this type of God because that is exactly what we need. His love for us is vast beyond measure. Verse 13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. God understands our weakness. This is God's compassion at work. Being a parent helps to understand this verse. When your young child is tired and falls asleep, you carry them to their bed. You sing to them, hold them, reassure them, and let them know that they do not have to fear. They don't have to be afraid. Late Monday night of this last week, a friend of mine, Aaron, a pastor, he had problems with the TSA at the airport. He missed his plane and needed a ride home. Our little one, Annika, she heard the phone call, and she does not like it when I travel to conferences. She didn't know I was just going to pick Aaron up at the airport. Annika heard the word airport, and she thought I was leaving, and so she started to cry. She is four years old. And as a father, I know her weakness. And so what do you do? You get down on your knee, holding her, reassuring her that I would be home in just a few hours. God knows our limitations. He knows our frailty and he responds with compassion. Know the love and compassion of God. As imperfect as we are, earthly fathers point us upward to our heavenly father. Listen, when an earthly father has done his job well, he makes it easy for his children to believe in their heavenly father. Our children learn that we do not worship a god of stone or some empty idol. We serve a father in heaven who knows our weakness and he loves us anyway. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He understands our fears and our hope. It is rooted in the compassion of God the Father. His mercy, his compassion towards us never ends to those who fear him. This is the compassion of God towards those who have been reconciled to him by faith in his son, those reconciled to God by his grace. Grace is love that has paid a price. And were it not for the death of Christ on the cross, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And this compassion that he shows to us is grounded in the work of Christ. David continues, verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. God remembers that we are dust. Here's a concept that we all understand. The leaves of summer soon turn brown. The first green leaves of spring soon end up in a pile of brown on your lawn. And yes, there is a scientific explanation for why they turn colors in the fall. But the simple explanation is that the leaves are slowly dying. Their beauty, it actually comes from death. Who remembers each leaf, not the tree? One by one, the leaves fall to the ground where they disintegrate and return to the soil from which they came. No one names them, numbers them, or even thinks about them. The seasons of life change. When I don't shave for a few days, my wife Angie loves to point out the gray in my beard. But it is just like the leaves changing colors, the subtle reminder that we won't be here forever. And if that is all there is, if we are here today and gone tomorrow, then there isn't much hope. Be thankful that our hope is not in man or anything that man can do. Our hope is in the everlasting God. He is the one who made man from the dust of the earth. Our short lives are like a spring flower losing their glory in the summer wind. And once it is gone, no one thinks of it anymore. Men are no different. Men burst onto the scene of human history, but then are swept away. Our merciful God knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He knows how fragile we are. And he knows that once we are gone, this world forgets us. But not so with God. And here is where we take comfort. Notice the contrast with verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments, to do them. Allow me to say it again our hope is in the everlasting God. There is nothing we can do about our frailty. We are created with the label upon us handle with care. We are like the dust devils that blow across the desert. We make a big scene and then we disappear. Try as we might, we cannot cancel our humanity. Nothing can change what we are. Exercise, eating healthy, it can slow down the process. But for all of us, the end is the same, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Psalm 103 offers us one strong ground of comfort that lifts us above the transitory nature of this life. It is the but of verse 17. It changes everything. That one word offers an eternal contrast between the fading flower and the everlasting God, between our morality and God's eternity. That one word of contrast stands at the demarcation between this life and the next. Here is our real hope of life that never ends. God's tender mercy, his unfailing love, his abounding mercy, his love is forever. Someone has said that life without Christ is a hopeless end, but life with Christ is an endless hope. And this endless hope is not only to us, but to our children's children. What will we leave our children? Money? A home? A life insurance policy? Whatever we may say about our earthly possessions, they pale next to the privilege of passing down a godly heritage, a tapestry of truth a pattern of belief, faith in Christ that our children and grandchildren can claim as their own. In a world where everything fades away, we have the promise that we are linked to the future, even after we are gone by the faithfulness of God to our children and our children's children. This, too, is the mercy of God. His blessing is on those with faith in Him. Romans 3, the need of every man is the righteousness of God and it can only come by faith in Christ faith righteousness our children can have it and this is why we must train them up in the way of the lord the mention of the covenant in verse 18 it takes us back to the mosaic covenant for the people of israel deuteronomy 6 it spelled it out for them when they entered into the promised land if they obeyed the precepts of god things would go well for them god would bless them but it was never that God was just looking for outward obedience because smack dab in the middle of that instruction in Deuteronomy six, verse five, Israel was told to love the Lord God with all of their hearts, with all of their souls and with all of their strength. God was after their hearts. He wanted them to walk by faith. We see this in Psalm 147, that the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in His mercy. God's love is great for those who fear Him. Over the last 20 years as I have taught God's Word, there have been a handful of true stories that have impacted me more than the rest. Allow me to share one of those with you. Billy Bray, a man from church history that everyone should read about, he was a little guy, a Cornish miner. He was saved from a terrible life of drunkenness and sin, one of the most remarkable salvation experiences. After he was saved, he went through some troubles in life, one after another, but he never quit praising the Lord. Billy was so happy, he shouted all the time, so much so that he actually bothered people, always joyful, always shouting. Somebody said to him one time, Billy Bray, why don't you tone it down some? You're just too happy. You've got too much joy all the time. Billy Bray's answer, I can't help it. God saved me and I can't help it. When I put one foot down, it says, hallelujah. And when I put down the other foot, it says, glory to God. He was asked one time, Billy, suppose you're mistaken. Suppose when you die, you find out that you are not going to heaven after all, that you're going to hell. Old Billy responded, Praise God. I've been having a wonderful time in the Lord all through the years. Jesus has been good to me, and if I die and go down to hell, then I'll be thankful for the joy Jesus brought me in life. Then sort of tongue-in-cheek, he said, (laughs) I'll shout all over hell, and they'll have to send me up to heaven because they can't stand that kind of joy down there. We need men like this today. men transformed by Christ, men who understand the richness of the grace of God, and they're not afraid to show it. What is Psalm 103 telling us? We're richer than we think. We're more blessed than we know, and we have more in Christ than we realize. We are frail, mortal sinners who are rich in the mercy of God. The mercy of God is found in the cross of Christ. All that we believe, all that we have, all that we hope for is found in the cross of Christ. The cross is where you will find your way home to God. The weakness of mankind, the needs, the guilt, our frailty, God knows about it and he has chosen to love us anyway. Rest in him, rejoice in him, and live in his richness knowing that his mercy is more than enough for all of us. We often get asked for more information on the end times. The good news is that we wrote a book titled What Lies Ahead, which is an overview from the Bible of the end times. You can find it on Amazon and you can find all the different formats it is offered in on our website, ReturnToTheWord.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. If you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. That helps us to tell others about this wonderful resource for studying about God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Return to the Word.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.